though I never uh, excelled through my grade school years in the subject of, of math, uh, it's, it's easy uh, to determine intellectually that 2 plus 2 does not equal 5. Uh, it's easy to verify that the earth is not flat but round. Uh, it's easy to verify that Abraham Lincoln or George Washington were real historical figures. But when it comes to spiritual truth and spiritual error, it seems that verification and discernment seem more difficult. Uh, disagreement is much more widespread in regards to these things. It seems that spiritual truth is not known merely by reason alone. And the Apostle John, in 1 John chapter 4, as we continue in this epistle, this letter that he has written, uh, helps to guide us in our pursuit to know the truth, uh, to live in the truth, and to make the truth known. So I would turn our attention to 1 John chapter 4, it's verses 1 through 6, as we continue in this letter. 1 John 4, beginning at verse 1. Listen now to the Word of God. John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world." They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. But we are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John speaks here uh, regarding testing the spirits, discerning truth, from error. And it's really hard to imagine or think of many things of greater value than seeking to know the truth. What is the truth and what is falsehood? Because what one understands to be true and good in life and in the world is going to give radical shape to our whole way of life. What we understand life's purpose to be, our direction, our aim, our hope, and what we rest upon. Let me ask you this uh, question. You don't need to raise your hand, but how many of you own your own home? You've been through that process. We've been through that process just uh, once. But I think most, if not all of us, know purchasing a home is a significant uh, financial investment. In some ways, we could say it's a significant life investment. There you are weighing out and taking out perhaps a 15, 20, 30-year loan. Uh, you're thinking long-term investment at that point. This is a place you may live in for many, many years, most of your uh, life. It's a much greater investment than, say, a vehicle. We're not talking 2000 or $10,000. We're talking about 100000 or multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so what do you do? You go to great lengths to help ensure 
that this is going to be a sound investment. You hire a third party. You hire a home inspector. And that person's job is essentially to go through your home and your property and pick it apart to identify potential leaky pipes, how long is left on the roof, potential foundational concerns, to reveal the degree to which this place is sound. Uh, To not hire that person may be a bit foolish. Because the value of this investment, uh, there's no mincing of words, there's no cutting of corners. You go to great lengths because of the value of it. If one goes to that kind of length for an investment in a house, how much more should one go to to know the truth, to be assured of the truth, to live in it? And even though throughout John's epistle we've seen thus far, a central theme is that of assurance of our salvation. He writes this letter to assure the saints of what they know, the assurance of their faith. Yet what does he do here? He calls his hearers to discern, to the weighty task of discerning truth from error. He says in verse 1 of our text, Beloved, don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets, many false teachers have already gone out into the world, he says. As John has already done, he continues to do in this section. And that is to make strong and clear contrasts. He speaks of the Spirit of God in verse 2 and the Spirit of Antichrist, contrasting them in verse 3. He speaks of he who is in you and he who is in the world in verse 4. He speaks about those who are from God those who are from the world, in 5 and 6. And then he speaks of the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, there in verse 6. However much the culture in any age might suggest that all humanity is in essentially the same quote-unquote boat, that all are essentially seeking truth, but never able to really come to uh, an assurance, a confidence of the truth. In contrast to that, John here, and the biblical authors throughout the Scriptures, make it clear there are some from God, and in God, God in them, and there are many who are from the world, bound still by their their fallen sin nature and the spirit of the evil one. And so John is calling us here to discern, to test the spirits, to discern truth from error. But how do we do that? How do we test the spirits? How do we discern truth from error? If you're like me, your immediate response might be, well, the Word of God. That's how we discern truth from error. Well, that's true in a lot of ways, yet we know some of the brightest minds, most intellectual people, even scholars of religious studies, scholars of Christianity, are people who do not profess faith in the Lord, don't believe in this God. They're outside the person of Christ. We could consider such a figure as uh, the contemporary Bart Ehrman. Uh, Bart Ehrman, once a professing evangelical Christian, currently serves as a professor of New Testament studies. He's a New Testament Greek scholar. 
Here he is teaching in the academy, and yet for years has now been a self-claimed agnostic. Not only does he doubt the existence of the God of the Bible, but, but he rejects Christianity because the Bible's failure in his mind to answer the fundamental problem of human suffering. If philosophers, if those with bright minds in the academy have not come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, what are you and I resting upon that we would have such confidence? Well, I think Jesus' words in John 7 give a key principle. In John 7, Jesus stands up during the Feast of Tabernacles and He begins to teach and preach. And you come to verse 17, and this is what Jesus says. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm just speaking on my own. If anyone's will is to do the will of God, he will know. I think we learn here that A primary gateway to spiritual truth is not so much the intellect, but the will, the heart. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person, the person still in the flesh, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It's not man's reason that brings him to a place of faith in Christ. Reason, working alone, leads one to see the cross as a foolish thing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Because the heart is closed. There's certainly good reasons to believe in the Lord and in the Christian faith, But coming to know the Lord requires more than reason. It requires the revelation of God. The supernatural breaking through of the revelation of God to a person. And this is why Jesus, after uh, Peter confesses Him as the Christ in in Matthew 16, uh, Jesus then responds by saying, uh, Peter, blessed are you, but this has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. It is a divine, it's a supernatural breaking through, a supernatural light. So when Jesus says in John 7, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God. He's saying, essentially, the proof, the test of the pudding is in the taste. If you've got a cup of pudding or something sweet in front of you, you might wish you had, You cannot know its sweetness by merely looking at it or by close examination or even touching it. You have to taste it. Knowing the truth, living a life in the truth, it doesn't begin or originate from within us. It's from God. And the person who willingly yields his life to God, who will taste of his ways, will grow in assurance of truth of living in the truth and of the goodness of God. Whether it's discerning truth from error or discerning God's will for our lives, day after day, it calls for one to willingly yield their heart to Him. Take my life and let it be consecrated 
Lord, to Thee we sing. Last week, while we were out west, uh, we worshipped at a, a local PCA congregation near Seattle, and the pastor made the, the statement that one of the greatest challenges he believes that pastors and indeed all believers face today is a culture that increasingly believes that truth originates from within, that truth is determined by the self, that that is increasingly the case in thinking in our society. It seems to me the world says, your truth may not be my truth, but it's really all truth because the truth comes from here. And that's the spirit of the age. It's, it's the spirit, as John says, of Antichrist. Against this, the apostle Jude says, I write appealing to you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. John is contending. That's what he's doing in part. Why? Because what he has is treasure. It's of greatest value and worth. And John provides some tests, some ways to help recognize if one is teaching, preaching the truth, if one is in the truth, or whether one is in falsehood and from the world. Here in our text, test number one, those in the truth profess Christ as Lord. Verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. The redemptive story throughout the Bible is emphatically Christ-centered and Christ-exalting. In Colossians 1, Jesus is referred to as the image of the invisible God, through whom all things were made. In Hebrews 1, He's the radiance, the, the brightness of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. In John 1, He's called the only God who is at the Father's side, who alone makes the Father known. We live in a day in which, for many, all that matters is that you believe in something. Could be yourself, a higher being of some sort, a higher power, some God, any God. Because the spirit of the age is about you, your belief, not what that belief is in. In Christianity... It's not the amount of faith. It is the object of faith that matters most. Great faith in a false god is of no effect in a dead idol. But little faith in a great and living Savior is everything. I think one of the clearest examples of the necessity to confess Christ as Lord, to call upon the Lord Jesus is the biblical figure Cornelius. Cornelius shows up in the book of Acts, and as the story and the events of the Acts of the Apostles unfold through that book, you come to chapter 9, and that is the conversion of Paul. And, and we're told specifically that Paul would be a, a missionary, a, a, an apostle to the Gentiles. That the gospel is now going to go forth in, in great power to the Gentile nations. 
And then you turn the page and you come to chapter 10 of Acts and you meet a Gentile, Cornelius. He's a centurion. He's a soldier. This is what it says of Cornelius in chapter 10 of Acts, verse uh, verse 2. Quote, he was a devout man who feared God, gave generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. That is a spiritual man. But I would argue he was yet still unsaved at that point. Later in chapter 10 of Acts, Peter, the apostle, sees a vision. And it's a vision that reveals that the gospel is now to go not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And so he's called to go to Caesarea, to Cornelius. And later when he reports what the angel said to the servants of Cornelius, he says this in chapter 11, verse 13, that they said, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. Here is Cornelius, God-fearing, giving alms, prayerful, yet one would still come to declare to him a message by which he would be saved. It's a reminder, one may be spiritually minded, religiously devout, but apart from the gospel, the, the, the point of confessing Christ, the one who is the only mediator between God and man, one is without hope. Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that He was raised from the dead, you will be saved. I trust Most of us know the name of Jesus. Do we know Him as the Christ, as John refers to Him here? Have we confessed Him as the Christ, that is, the Anointed One, the One qualified to come, to be crucified, to come in the flesh to be crucified, whose blood alone has atoned for my sin, for your sin? Test 1 is the confession of Christ present in the teaching. Test number two, that one is in the truth. They not only confess Christ as Lord, but John goes a step further here. They possess Christ. They possess Him. It's one thing to confess or profess Christ, but another to possess Him. We know Jesus taught in Matthew 7, many will say to me on that day, that last day, Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus will say to them, I I never knew you. So the true believer not only professes him, but has the living God and Christ dwelling in him. You see this in verse 4. John says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. With the vastly different and competing religious and spiritual views in this world of what is right, what is good, what is moral, what defines man's identity, what humanity's purpose is, where history is headed, we will need much more than our own minds. Much more than our own 
reasoning capacity. Sorry to break it to you. We're not that smart. We're not smart enough. We're not sound enough. We don't have the strength or the capacity enough. We will need a much greater resource. To live in the truth, to be about the truth, we need something, someone much greater than ourselves who will reveal this truth to us and keep us in it. That's part of what John is after. In order for you and I to have come to know Christ as Lord in the first place, by His grace, we overcame falsehood. His grace and His Spirit persuaded us, regenerated us, changed us. And John says, we have overcome them. That is, false teaching and false teachers, falsehood. You have overcome them. That word for overcome means to conquer. Nikeo. It's the word for victory. If you have pieces of clothing, a hat, a jacket, t-shirt with the Nike word or symbol on it, that's where that word comes from. It comes from here. Nike. Victory. Yes, we're still called to discern truth and error, to overcome false teaching, but we have already overcome. The Christian stands in victory today. We've overcome through the blood of Christ, covering our sins. We have victory because the Word and Spirit of Christ has made us to see. To see who God is as Creator and Redeemer. To see who Christ is, as was read earlier, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You are from God and have overcome That's to give lift to our souls. Our family does not uh, make it to the theaters too often, but while we were out west, we went to see, by way of recommendation, the new uh, Top Gun movie. I'm curious, how many people have seen that? Quite a few of you. We went with my folks, and uh, if you've seen that one, or you've seen the first one, or you've not seen either of them, you know any time the main plot involves the training of an elite group of fighter pilots, there's going to be victory. You know that going in. But why? How? It's not Tom Cruise. Maybe a fine actor. But the mission's victory is not because of him. It's because the authors wrote the story with that end. Our story, as believers, has been written as well. And it is a story of victory through Christ. Through His death, through His resurrection, through His ascension, through His reigning power even now. John Calvin, commenting on these verses here in 1 John, says the apostles' aim was to encourage believers to resist impostors bravely and undauntedly. You have overcome. For Our keenness falters when the outcome of the battle is doubtful. Whatever contests we may have against the world and the flesh, certain victory accompanies them. But we must notice the reason immediately given, because greater, which is a word meaning stronger, 
is He who is in you than He who is in the world. From this he concludes that we can no more be conquered than God Himself who has armed us with His own power to the end of the world. The final test of being in the truth. Professing Christ, possessing Christ, possessing God, that He lives within us. Finally, proclaiming Him. There in verse 6, he says, Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. John is saying that those who listen to the apostolic word, the word of the gospel of Christ coming to redeem a people, those who listen, those who hear, those who respond, they are from God. Those who do not listen, who do not have ears to hear, are not from God. Martin Luther said, when we speak from the Spirit of God, often the majority snore. But we have that calling to make known, to proclaim this truth of who God is, who Christ is. It is a high calling all of us have. To be a people, however great or small, our sphere of influence in our marriage, in our home, our family, our vocation, our church, our neighborhood, to be people whose lives are centered on the truth of who Christ is and what Christ has come to do, to promote that truth, to contend for the faith. This is the truth that is held out as the only ultimate hope for the human soul. Let's pray together. Lord, we recognize that the assurance of our faith, the assurance that we are in the truth is the result of Your supernatural work in our lives and how we, how we praise You for Your grace to pierce our hearts, to open the eyes of our hearts that we might behold this Gospel, that we might not only understand it and know it, but to truly find rest in it. We pray that You would give us rest again for our souls. Lord, as we continue seeking after You in faithfulness to be people who love Your Word, who love this Gospel, who, who seek to be having lives formed around it. Lord, help us to encourage one another to draw near to this One, the Lord Jesus, who saves, who redeems, who restores, who encourages us, who sanctifies us by His Spirit. Continue, O Lord, to feed our souls as we continue worshiping You, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.